and gentlemen, all right now, Ralph? welcome to the 183rd annual meeting of the Chicago Roundtable. And I'm happy to see that to start the year off, we have such a tremendous attendance here. More than that, we have with us tonight, I think, more of the old timers, the old group, than we've ever had at a meeting for some time. I have a list of, of members who have been here at the Chicago Roundtable for 15 years or more. And I'd like to have you rise, please, as I call your name. Abe Geldhoff. You all know the trouble Abe had getting down here. He told me it took, took him two hours to get down here and a half an hour to walk up the steps. Thanks for coming, Abe. Bob Hutner. Bill Herzog. Uh, the next member was not only is not only a member for 15 years, he won the original founders, Fred Evers. Leon Stoltz. Here's a lad we've missed for some time. I'm glad he's back in the fold. George Lilly. Franklin Mining. And Don Russell. Now the rest of these members have all been past presidents of the round table. Ken McIntyre. Hal Hickson. The next gentleman, and not only a past president, but also one of the founders of Chicago Roundtable, Elmer Gertz. <laughs> Joe Eisendrath. <laughs> Lloyd Miller. <laughs> Another founder and past president, Ralph Newman. And another founder and past president, Newton Farr. And Pete Long. And Monroe Cockrell, also a founder and past president. I also have to announce the news tonight, sadly enough, the Sox lost the first game, three to nothing. To get on with the show, you all know Dr. Nevins, he's addressed us before, and if you were in Galesburg in 1958, you heard him take part in that symposium, which we all enjoyed so much. Of course, you're familiar with most of his books, certainly with The Ordeal of the Union and Emergence of Lincoln and his book on Fremont, and the book that you probably all have purchased today. He's a, an honorary member of this Chicago Roundtable, and he is presently the president of the American Historical Association and also, I believe, of the Society of American Historians. So that you may enjoy him more, I call on Dr. Nevin.
This is uh, just an old Illinois boy talking tonight who came from Camp Point down the CB&Q Railroad, as it seems to me now, not very many years ago, and who hasn't learned very much since then, uh, <clears throat> but is gradually teaching himself something about the Civil War. I find this a rather uh, terrifying moment. After uh, 30 years of teaching college students who, whatever I remarked to them, would answer, yes, Professor Nevins, here I'm confronted with a hundred experts on the Civil War. The, <clears throat> there was a soldier at Fredericksburg, according to the old story, who was skedaddling hastily to the rear when a major stopped him and said, stop, you coward, turn around, get back into line, you're not wounded. To which the soldier said, let me through, let me through. I know I'm not wounded, but I am fearfully demoralized. <laughs> I think I should, uh, I think I should add that uh, <clears throat> I've perhaps gotten you here on false pretenses. I wanted to speak about the darkest hour in the, of the war in the Northwest, <clears throat> but I uh, should add uh, that I don't think it was such a very dark hour after all. The <clears throat> Any of you who uh, came here with the idea that I would entertain you with cloak and dagger stories of a fearful conspiracy that came very near subverting government and the Union, uh, <clears throat> will I fear find my talk a disappointment. I don't think there was any, at any time, a fearful conspiracy. I don't think that the tide of disloyalty at any time threatened the bastions of the Union. The Chicago Morning Post, at one of the darkest moments in January 1863, said that it, the leading Democratic paper of the city, had discovered a frightful conspiracy, which it proceeded to describe at length in its columns. It said the object of the conspiracy was to set the city of Chicago on fire, meanwhile roll back the waters of Lake Michigan so that <clears throat> the fire department or the volunteers of the fire department would have to try to extinguish the fire with the waters of Chicago River, which would, uh, which would destroy all the inhabitants of the city of Chicago by suffocation. <laughs> I take somewhat that view of the uh, great alleged wave of disloyalty that uh, rose in Illinois and Indiana in the winter of 1862 and 1863. It was easier to exaggerate it than to present it in its true proportions. And I also think that <clears throat> there was a good deal to be said for the Copperhead position. I know that is rank heresy, but then <clears throat> I'm an Adlai E. Stevenson kind of Democrat, and I can't help having a lurking sympathy for the Democrats of Illinois and Indiana even during the Civil War. I think they took some tenable positions. Well, first we ought to recall the background of <clears throat> events in the winter of 
Uh, it was a dark and gloomy period throughout the whole United States. The year 1862 had been probably the most disappointing year in American history. Uh, <clears throat> it had opened amid very high hopes, and in February, January, February, March, April, those hopes had mounted. Fort Henry and Fort Donelson were taken. The Union Army pushed down and took possession of Nashville and pressed on to the bound, southern boundary of Tennessee and the northern boundary of Mississippi. The <clears throat> city of New Orleans was captured by Farragut's fleet, and Farragut pushed up the Mississippi as far as Vicksburg with great hopes that his fleet and the small land force could actually capture that stronghold. He did take possession of Baton Rouge. In the east, the Monitor defeated the Merrimack, and McClellan at long last got underway and lumberingly captured Yorktown and pushed on and fought a battle at Williamsburg and actually won it. And hopes ran high that with his overwhelming army he would press on to Richmond. All those bright hopes were dashed to the ground in the months of May and June of 1862. Every hope was extinguished, every one. <clears throat> Farragut's expedition came to naught. He was totally unable with his small contingent of troops to make any impression at Vicksburg. And after a second try, he was very glad to drop down the river again and seek refuge in the ocean, and even Baton Rouge was abandoned. The great army which checked Albert Sidney Johnston at Shiloh was marched 30 miles across country in 30 days by General Halleck and then when it might have been used to take Vicksburg or even Chattanooga, was dissipated, divided into half a dozen different units. Those units scattered over the vast south and southwest. <clears throat> Meanwhile, McClellan, pressing up to the gates of Richmond, engaged in the bloody seven days battles and <clears throat> suffered defeat after defeat until for a while Lincoln and the authorities in Washington were desperately afraid that he would surrender his army. And eventually he had to be brought back from the James. The Union forces had been checked all along the line. All hope of a short war was, last, was lost. Men actually had believed for a time, early in 62, that the war would be over by the 4th of July, perhaps, or by Thanksgiving at most. Now they saw that it would last for two years or three years, more. It was a depressing period. And in the latter half of 1862, as you all recall, there was a new series of disasters. <clears throat> destruction, almost, <clears throat> destruction of a great part of Pope's army at Second Manassas, the invasion of Maryland, the very indecisive encounter at South Mountain and Antietam, and <clears throat> followed by the dismissal of McClellan. And meanwhile, in the West, the great campaign of Bragg, in which he invaded Kentucky, and for a while threatened to capture Louisville. 
even Cincinnati was terrorized. And the year ended, 1862, with the terrible slaughter at Fredericksburg and with a great cabinet crisis in Washington. It seemed for a while that Trumbull of Illinois and others would force the president to reorganize his administration. The president declined to be budged. Trumbull, to the end of his days, thought that he was right, that Lincoln was wrong. Nevertheless, there was a great deal of ill feeling about the whole situation in Washington, the series of errors, the bungling. Now, <clears throat> meanwhile, in the Northwest, <clears throat> discontent had risen to what a great many people thought a dangerous point. And I think it had risen uh, primarily to that point for one simple reason, because the burdens and frustrations of the war had uh, <clears throat> become far greater than had been anticipated at the beginning. The <clears throat> population of Indiana and Illinois was to a great extent of southern extraction, relationship, and sympathy. Much of this population had never approved of the war at heart. They had blamed it equally on southern fire eaters and on northern abolitionists, so long as they thought that the conflict would be short, down that is until June and July. They were willing to support a struggle for the Union, they had a strong Jacksonian sense of the value of the Union. When it became clear that the war would be long and extremely burdensome, they began to revolt. They had done their full share in supplying volunteers. <clears throat> the Adjutant General, General's report for Illinois for the year 1862 showed that the state of Illinois had roughly 270,000 men liable for service under the Supplementary Draft Act late in 1862 in the second half of 62 when Lincoln was trying to fill up the quota of 300,000 new volunteers that he had called for and uh, 300,000 more militiamen for nine months service. Illinois' uh, total of men liable to service under those calls was 270,000. The state actually had half that number, 135,000 in the ranks. <clears throat> this was a magnificent showing, since the war was still so young. And the Democratic counties unquestionably had done a great deal more than their share at the beginning. Massac County, in the southern part of the state, had given Lincoln 127 votes in the election of 1860, but it sent 505 men or five-sevenths of the men liable in Massac County into the army before the end of 1862. Union County gave Lincoln 157 votes in 1860, but it sent 908 men, or more than three-fourths of those liable for service, into the Union Army before the end of 62. Williamson, County gave Lincoln 173 votes, 
but it sent 1,031 men into the army, or more than five-sixths of the number who were liable for service. Now, a natural result of the heavy volunteering from the democratic counties uh, was that these counties suffered extremely heavy casualty lists in the battles of 1862. Shiloh had filled thousands of homes in the northwest with mourning. The four indecisive battles, I think we can fairly call them indecisive, of Iuka, Corinth, Perryville, and Murfreesboro, late in 1862, Murfreesboro just as the year turned into 63, these four indecisive battles cost the Union more than 3,000 men killed and 12,000 wounded. Many of the wounded to die later or to return home mutilated. These totals outrun the cost of the Battle of Antietam or the Battle of Fredericksburg in the east. 3,000 homes in mourning for drawn battles without permanent results and the neglect of the wounded on the battlefields in the West added a great deal of anger to the sorrow that was felt in northwestern homes. Meanwhile, the democratic population had a strong feeling all through the later months of 1862 that what had begun as a national war to save the Union had become a Republican war to extinguish slavery to establish a strong centralized government and to scatter economic benefits among Republican interests at the expense of agrarian and democratic interests. The draft that Lincoln instituted after McClellan's debacle to fill up the rank of the ranks of the 300,000 volunteers for which he had called uh, <coughs> This draft angered much of the population. So did the impairment of civil liberties, the succession of arbitrary arrests. So did the steady enlargement of national authority. And so most of all did the proclamation of emancipation. Now, the proclamation of emancipation was bitterly unpopular in the whole southern part of Illinois and Indiana and I think a great part, a great many of the central counties, for two main reasons. First, many thousands of people there, many tens of thousands, had sprung for, from Virginia, Kentucky, and Tennessee. And they had relatives in those states and in Missouri. They knew what bitter hardship and the abrupt military emancipation of the slaves would cause. They sympathized with Southerners in their feeling that the problem of race relations was too intricate and delicate to be dealt with by this kind of rough surgery. A New England abolitionist who had never been in the South or had never lived near a slave state could afford to be callous in this matter, but not an Illinoisan. Who had, whose family had sprung from an old slave state, whose lineage and connections were with the slave states. And then as a second reason for uh, popular dislike of the emancipation, 
Proclamation, Southern Illinois and Southern Indiana deeply feared an influx of liberated slaves. As the armies pressed south, the slaves would be freed, flock into the lines, they would be sent on northward. <clears throat> this fear of a Negro influx was held by most Illinoisans and Indianians, I should say, without respect to party. Republicans shared the fear, along with Democrats, New Englanders, along with those of Southern origin. But it was keenest south of a line that could be drawn from Quincy through Jacksonville, through Springfield, through Danville, through Indianapolis, over to the Ohio line. <clears throat> the state constitution of Illinois had long penalized the introduction of free Negroes, made the introduction of free Negroes punishable. Uh, rather severely punishable. During 1862, the Constitution was strengthened in this regard by fresh provisions. And the evidence is clear that a majority of the Lincoln Republicans voted for strengthening the Constitution in these regards. It's not merely a majority of the Democrats who voted for it. Uh, new provisions empowered the legislature of Illinois to pass laws aimed to discourage and, if possible, totally prevent any immigration of Negroes into the state. And when the legislature met in January of 1863, a bill was immediately introduced which punished any Negro who entered the state of Illinois by a fine imprisonment and 39 lashes on the bare back. Now, the enforcement of any such provision was another matter, uh, but the bill was introduced. And such charitable items as this blossomed out in the Illinois press. Here's one which I will read to you. The contrabands at Cairo. There are now nearly 1,500 contrabands at Cairo, 500 having been sent up from Columbus last week. This item appeared in the winter of 1862-63. They are a dirty, ragged, and filthy lot of human beings, most of them being the refuse of southern plantations, which the owners were very probably glad to get rid of. Only a small portion of the whole number are able or willing to work. The smallpox is among them, and there is an average of 10 deaths a day. Such items occurred day by day in the press, Republican as well as Democratic. Then in the fourth place, and this I think is a matter that uh, deserves strong emphasis, uh, a feeling existed that the war was being used to enrich certain Eastern industrial and mercantile and banking interests and impoverish the Western farming interests. That feeling was felt very strongly among farmers of Indiana and Illinois. <clears throat> it pervaded the whole Northwest. Hundreds of articles, editorials, and speeches expressed it. Just after Fredericksburg, that is, after the terrible disaster in December of 1862, <clears throat> $100 in gold would purchase $135 in greenbacks. The result was that a man who had $750 in gold could buy enough greenbacks to obtain a $1,000 gold bond, paying 6% interest and running 
for from five to 20 years. This bond would pay him $60 a year interest in gold, not in greenbacks, but in gold. He could reinvest the $60 interest. Then in 1868, or a year or two later, his $1,000 bond would be redeemed by a payment of $1,000 in gold. That was an easy way to get rich if you had some gold. And the uh, uh, industrial groups, the banking groups, the Easterners of capital had the gold. Meanwhile, the tariffs of 1861 and 62, and particularly of 1862, injured the Western farmer and they greatly benefited Eastern manufacturers. One of Douglas's friends, Samuel S. Hayes of the city of Chicago, was busy making speeches all winter of 62, 63, denouncing the tariff. He was a member of the legislature. He was one of the members who thought that the war ought to be stopped by Congress, that a national convention should be held, and the Southern Sisters be invited to rejoin the Union uh, under a safeguard of their interests. And as one safeguard of their interests, he would offer them a free trade principle. All tariffs should be abolished. We should go on the same free trade basis as Great Britain. <clears throat> as various men pointed out, the Eastern manufacturers got a heavy majority of the war contracts. The trunk line railroads, which were mainly owned by Eastern capital, were garnering a rich harvest from war traffic and from the closing of the Mississippi, which threw all the uh, grain and cattle traffic of the West on the trunk lines. Agrarian groups were complaining of extortionate freight rates and elevator rates the same complaints that were soon to be raised more loudly by the Grangers and later by the Farmers Alliance men and the populists. Meanwhile, what was wanted most of all was the great desideration, desideratum of the nation as a whole, which was victory. Defeat after defeat after defeat and just filled men with discouragement. Many of them was with despair. That was particularly true, I think, in the West, because to the West, victory meant one great object above all others, the clearing of the Mississippi. There was still in the West a great sentimental feeling, in part a practical feeling, about the absolute necessity of clearing the Mississippi. The East-West lines had never taken the place occupied in the Northwestern imagination by the Mississippi River system the Ohio, Missouri, Mississippi system, which Thomas Hart Benton had called Mare Nostrum. The Northwest insisted on union, partly for sentimental reasons, but partly also for large national reason, regions, and in large part for sectional reasons. It must have the Mississippi in its control. It must hold the Mississippi to the Gulf. Douglas had said in 1861 that the men of Illinois would follow the Mississippi River inch by inch with the bayonet to the Gulf until they redeemed that stream. When defeat followed defeat in the East, 
Checkmate followed checkmate. Impatient Westerners said that the East might make peace with the South and define its own boundaries there. But in that event, the Northwest would secede, would continue its own war until it had conquered the entire Mississippi Valley and the Southwest and would make its own republic, with the Mississippi as the great central artery of that republic. Even Medill, the editor of the Chicago Tribune, said that. Even Medill spoke of a separate Western Republic based on the occupation of the whole Mississippi Valley. And Democrats said it more loudly than Medill. <clears throat> now, Lincoln knew of this feeling of the Northwest. Uh, Orville H. Browning tells us that one day he called on Lincoln in the White House in the winter of 62-63. Lincoln led him up to a map. There was a map of the Mississippi River and of the counties bordering on the Mississippi. And the map showed the proportion of whites and Negroes in those counties bordering the Mississippi. Lincoln pointed out county after county where three-fourths of the population, even five-sixths of the population, was Negro. And said Lincoln, the Mississippi must be ours. I tell you, I am determined to open it, and if necessary, I will take all these Negroes to help open it and to help keep it open. Well, <clears throat> in the winter of 1862-63, as it happened, uh, three plans were offered for reclaiming the Mississippi. Uh, these plans were of a special interest and importance to the Northwest. One plan was offered by General John McClernand, an Illinois Democrat. He had been in Congress a great many years as a Democratic congressman. He had, in fact, been in Congress as a Democratic congressman when Lincoln was in Congress. Lincoln had known him very well in Congress and outside of Congress and had great respect for this veteran of the Mexican War. His plan was to recruit a special army. He would take care of the recruiting, coordinate it with a strong fleet of gunboats, and with this special army of not less than 60,000 men, moved straight down the Mississippi to strike at Vicksburg. That was essentially the old plan of General Scott at the beginning of the war, a, uh, an amphibious expedition to go straight down the Mississippi. Uh, uh, McClernand's idea was that uh, they should not go down until they reached Vicksburg, but should turn inland when they reached the Azul River, and strike toward Jackson, Mississippi, and then uh, from Jackson, strike at Vicksburg. Governor Morton of Indiana, meanwhile, had his own plan for conquering the Mississippi Valley. He would get 100,000 men together. This was his plan that he laid before Lincoln. Uh, but he would not move down the Mississippi. He would move this army of 100,000 in from Louisiana, and use it to conquer Louisiana, eastern Texas, Arkansas, and the whole west bank of the Mississippi. He would do this in the first 90 days, if possible, of fairly good weather in 1863. Thus, even if the Cotton Kingdom became independent, the free navigation of the Mississippi would be assured to the Northwest by its occupation of the whole west bank of the Mississippi and the mouth. 
Grant also had a plan for conquering the Mississippi Valley. He enunciated it as soon as he was put in command of the new department of the Tennessee in the fall of 1862. That was in October and immediately became head of this new department. He wrote Halleck, the general-in-chief in the East, that Halleck had never suggested any plan of operations to him, and so he would propose one of his own. He proposed concentrating his troops and moving down the Mississippi Central Railroad toward Jackson, Mississippi, going along the line of the railroad. Once his column, following the railroad southward, reached Granada, it could be supplied by a supplementary line of rail from Memphis, reaching over eastward from Memphis to Granada. When it got to Jackson, it would be in a position, according to Grant's theory, to force the evacuation of Vicksburg. <clears throat> the administration had in a measure a choice among these three plans. And there can be no question that it uh, leaned first foremost to McClernand's plan. It seemed the soundest. Uh, now this plan of McClernand has been uh, wildly denounced by a great many of the military writers of the period. John Fisk, for example. Um, <clears throat> they, they, say, they say that it represented a political intrigue, or they say that it represented military insubordination on McClernand's part. I don't think that was true at all. It seems to me that on the contrary, here was a plan by a Democratic leader of Illinois who realized how intensely the Democrats of Illinois and Indiana were wrought up over the situation. A plan by which this Democratic leader could raise troops, which would very probably be largely Democratic in character, and he had a great influence among Illinois and Indiana Democrats, and he would move them down the river. Now, it was strategically a sounder plan than Grant's plan of moving down the Mississippi Central Railroad because the river could be held. The gunboats could keep it open as the expedition moved forward, but the line of railroad could be cut at any time, and in fact, it was cut. Well, <clears throat> at the end of October in 62, to this train of disasters, McClernand was back in Springfield from Washington with all the authority he wanted from Lincoln and Stanton. He was to range through Illinois and Indiana and Iowa to raise fresh troops there and send them to Cairo and Memphis. To the end, that ran his instructions. When a sufficient force not required by the operations of General Grants shall be raised, an expedition may be organized under General McClernand's command against Vicksburg. And Lincoln put a special endorsement on the order. I feel a deep interest, he wrote, in the success of the expedition and desire it to be pushed forward with all possible dispatch consistently with the other parts of the military service. I think Lincoln's interest in it was only half a military interest. The other half was a political interest. Here was a plan by which a democratic leader, long recognized, long influential in the West, should lead an expedition to reclaim the whole Mississippi line. Well, McClernand raised his men without difficulty. Even by November 10th, he had 20 regiments at Columbus and Memphis. He was sending them there with batteries of artillery. Uh, no less a person than Frank P. Blair, Jr., was anxious to join him. It looked as if he would go straight down to 
Vicksburg, and Grant watched him with a jaundiced eye, I think. Grant had his own plans. But we all know what happened uh, in this situation. Grant did march south on the Mississippi Central. He had Sherman move out to join him on December 5th, just before the disaster at Fredericksburg. They camped at Oxford, Mississippi, side by side. But Grant had a very bad supply problem. He established his base of supplies at Holly Springs, reached by 180 miles of track from Columbus, Kentucky. The line from Memphis to Granada was not usable. Even when Grant got to Granada, he would be a long way north of Vicksburg. And he saw that he uh, was taking the wrong line. He ordered Sherman back to Memphis to lead an amphibious expedition down the river ahead of McClernand with gun Porter's gunboats to help. And both Sherman and Grant ran into disaster. Uh, Nathaniel Bedford Forrest raided Grant's supply track from Columbus and cut it in several places. And then Earl Van Dorn's cavalry smashed Grant's base at Holly Springs and captured 1,500 men and a million and a half dollars worth of stores. This was just after mid-December, just after Fredericksburg. Sherman, the day after Christmas, was repulsed on the Yazoo at the Battle of Chickasaw Bluffs. Grant had to retire with his army of 45,000 on Memphis, and Price's army at Granada was set free to reinforce Vicksburg. Meanwhile, McClernand took Arkansas Post, and when he took Arkansas Post, Grant sent a telegram to Halleck, McClernand has gone on a wild goose chase to Arkansas Post and Halleck authorized Grant to relieve McClernand from command. But then Grant found that McClernand had scored a great success. He had actually captured Arkansas Post, and he found that Sherman, who was accompanying McClernand, had approved of the expedition. And Grant hastily made backtracks to retract what he had said. The news of all this went through the Northwest. The, uh, news of what McClernand thought, and with a great deal of uh, reason, it seems to me, was unjust treatment by Grant and Sherman and Halleck. It followed the dismissal of McClellan, a Democrat at the head of the Eastern Armies. It followed the dismissal of Buell, uh, another Democrat at the head of the Western Armies, his replacement by Rosecrans. And there were Democrats in southern Illinois and southern Indiana who said, ah, no Democrat will do as the commander of the troops. He will be conspired against and destroyed. The Republican administration will not suffer a Democrat to achieve even victories in peace. While the winter thus passed in deadlock and discouragement, the tide of this loyalty rose, and every setback gave it strength. Uh, now, the, in Illinois and in Indiana, the Democrats had won control of the legislatures in the fall of 62. The governors of those states, Yates and Morton, held four-year terms. They could, they were secure in their posts. They, <clears throat> I'm sorry to say that there is no biography of any kind 
worthy of the name of biography, of Yeats. There is a rather poor biography by William Dudley Foulkes of Oliver P. Morton. Now, I have this much warrant for saying it's poor, that I happen to know that Mr. Foulkes, in his last years, wanted very much to rewrite it with new evidence that had come to light and said that it ought to be completely rewritten, but circumstances thwarted him. I think that uh, the scholars of Indiana and Illinois ought to make a point of paying some special attention to the careers of Dick Yates and of Oliver P. Morton. A great number of newspapers exploited the current discontent. The Chicago Times, which the City Board of Trade in the last days of 62 denounced, for almost daily articles giving aid and comfort to traitors. The Cincinnati Inquirer, which declared that the idea of a union established by force had become ridiculous. The Detroit Free Press, the Indianapolis Sentinel, all these were abetted by numerous smaller newspapers like the Peoria Democrat, a German paper, which the government excluded from the mails for treasonable articles. Now, the precise strength of disloyalty in the Northwest or in the country in general is for three main reasons difficult to measure. First, its definition almost eludes us. How do you define disloyalty? Second, its worst manifestations were kept secret. And third, its vigor fluctuated from place to place and day to day. Who was disloyal? Any patent conspirator for Confederate success, like Dr. William Bowles of French Lake Springs in Indiana, who organized the Knights of the Golden Circle along the border, he was certainly a traitor. So was any northerner who strove actively for peace at the price of disunion, or at the price of forming a new nation which should include the South and exclude New England. A very favorite idea. Uh, offered even by the New York Herald. Any man who corresponded with Confederate leaders or tried to block recruiting or who committed acts of sabotage or who disseminated false reports designed to cripple the government could, I think, be termed disloyal. But a twilight penumbra surrounds the words. Disloyalty, sedition. Seward himself had stood for peace at the price of temporary disunion. Let the Southern sisters go. Multitudes of good citizens declared that they would support recruiting and heavy taxation to save the Union, but they would not support it to enforce emancipation. The Newark Evening Journal, which supported a well-known copperhead, Governor Joel Parker in that state, declared, it will be seen that Mr. Lincoln has called for another 600,000 men. All who wish to be butchered will please step forward. All others will please stay at home and defy old Abe. Were such words as those treason? The epithet traitor was assuredly used with reckless looseness. There was a wealthy Illinois landholder named Isaac Funk. Uh, who was one of the Republican minority who went to the state legislature this winter. Democrats organized both houses. He lost his temper in the state senate and he burst into a violent philippic. These villains and traitors and secessionists in this senate 
he vociferated, are killing my neighbor's boys now fighting in the field. And Republicans in the gallery burst into wild applause as he went on. Mr. Speaker, these traitors on this floor should be provided with hempen collars. He glared at some of his colleagues. Hell itself, he said, could not spew out a more traitorous crew than some of the men who disgraced this Illinois legislature. And uh, radical members of the assembly agreed that the House contained some downright traitors. Morton of Indiana was sure that traitors abounded in the Northwest, and he described their conspiracy as Machiavellian. The Democratic scheme, he said, may be briefly stated thus, end the war at the earliest possible moment, by any means whatever. This, of course, lets the rebel states go and acknowledges the Southern Confederacy. They will propose, they will then propose to the rebels, the disunionists would, a reunion and a reconstruction upon the condition of leaving out the New England states. This they believe the rebel states will accept, and so do I. It would withdraw 12 votes from the Senate and leave the slave states in a permanent majority. Governor Seymour and the leading Democratic politicians of New York and Pennsylvania are in this scheme. So said Oliver P. Morton. He offered no evidence for his reckless assertion about Horatio Seymour. Yet a great deal of the so-called treason was no worse than the utterances of the eminent artist and inventor, S.F.B. Morse, who urged men to stop fighting as long as emancipation was an object of the war. He said, not morally bound, legally bound, to fight for emancipation. And who would apply the epithet of traitor to so illustrious an American as Nathaniel Hawthorne? He wrote a close friend in the fall of 1861 that he did not want to see the Union restored as it was. I quote, amputation seems to me much the better plan, and all we ought to fight for is the liberty of selecting the point where our diseased members shall be left off. I would fight to the death for the northern slave states and let the southern slave states go. And the next spring found Nathaniel Hawthorne of the same mind as in the midst of the war. It would be too great an absurdity to spend all our northern strength for the next generation in holding on to people who insist on being let loose. And even after Gettysburg, Hawthorne clung to his belief. The best thing possible, so far as I can see, is to effect the separation of the Union, giving us the west bank of the Mississippi and a boundary line affording as much southern soil as we can hope to digest in another century. Now, I think any list of uh, the most civilized Americans of the day would have carried Hawthorne at the top and S.F.B. Morse very near the top. Could you call them traitors? It was the problem of definition that made it so difficult to deal with disloyalty as well as to measure it. Millions held an honest conviction that the war should be fought for the Union alone, that it should be ended as quickly as possible, and that the old fraternal relations between North and South should be restored without recrimination or penalties. Compromise must replace harshness. Moderation must take the place of radicalism. The uh, best heir to the spirit of Stephen A. Douglas was the Ohio representative, Sunset Cox, S.S. Cox. 
and he said that if we get rid of the spirit of Charles Sumner and Thad Stevens and Ben Wade, the reaction in the South will soon begin. And while that reaction grows, civil liberties in the North can be protected and the Union can be restored. Now, the winter crisis was really dangerous only, I think, in the two states of Indiana and Illinois. It was never dangerous in Iowa or Wisconsin or Michigan or even Ohio. But in these two states, the Democratic legislatures tried to wrest from Morton and Yates the control of military affairs that they had used, these two governors had used so effectively because they were both very efficient war governors. The plan of the Democrats in both states was to establish a military board or army board and transfer to it all the governor's authority over militia, camps, and arms. It was clear that Copperhead leaders in the two states were working in unison and in both Union men took the same countermeasures. In both states, I think very powerful socio-economic currents ran under the surface antagonism. This agrarian resentment against high railroad rates, combinations to control livestock and grain markets, high tariffs, and an unfair tax system, all the complaints of the subsequent Granger movement tinged the hatred of Republican war measures. That is, Jeffersonianism was battling against a new advance of the Hamiltonian and Whig system. The situation was more threatening in Indiana because Morton's regime there had been the more autocratic. There's one thing you can say about Dick Yates. He got drunk with great frequency, and uh, uh, that made for a certain moderation of policy, I think. Uh, <clears throat> the fanaticism of Oliver P. Morton never abated. The vast majority of the Indiana people, I'm convinced, were entirely loyal. But the arbitrariness of some of Morton's measures, his vehement radicalism, his intense hostility to Buell, it was Morton who got Buell dismissed. His exploitation of the Senate's ouster of Senator of Jesse D. Bright, the Democratic senator in Indiana. All this aroused the detestation of most Democrats there. During the fall, it had been necessary to draft about 6,000 men to meet the state quota under Lincoln's latest calls. Actually, Indiana had provided, as it later found, for its full quota, but for more than its share, but Morton enforced the conscription. And local disturbances were followed by arbitrary arrests. When the legislature met in January 1863, it was filled with dissension. Democratic extremists attacked the tyrants and usurpers ruling the state. They declared they would not give another man or another dollar and they offered resolutions denouncing emancipation, the tariff, and the arming of Negroes. And Republicans countered by assailing their opponents as traitors and arousing some regiments in the field to issue violent manifestos. And then after a midnight caucus, the Democrats introduced a bill giving control of militia arms and munitions to a new state board of the lesser state officers who were Democrats. Now, actually, uh, there's only one way of uh, dealing with that situation, uh, in Morton's view. I think he could have been patient, he could have uh, arranged a compromise, but he was high-handed, he was frightened, he was autocratic. 
ruthless man, uh, temper of a dictator of a petty Hitler in Indiana, and he persuaded the minority in the Senate and the House in Indiana to walk out, thus uh, breaking a quorum. The Indiana legislature ceased to exist. Uh, no quorum could be assembled. He said he did that because he knew that if the legislature went ahead with the plans of the majority of the Democrats, the state of Indiana would be involved within 24 hours in civil war. Now that to me just justifies Lincoln's view of Morton, that he was the scaredest man he ever knew. Morton was liable to sudden panics. And so Morton broke up the legislature. Actually, uh, this extra-legal bolt was not so much a coup to frustrate a treasonable conspiracy as a party maneuver to make political capital to keep control of militia patronage and to block other democratic bills. I think the struggle was sordid on both sides. For a time it seemed that the democratic minority might take extra-legal measures. It proceeded for a little while with the forms of a legislative body and threatened to pass the military bill without a quorum. But in the end, the legislature died not to meet again in Indiana until 1865, until the war was ending. Its most important action had been to elect two Democrats to the United States Senate, Thomas A. Hendricks and David Turpey. As it failed to pass any appropriations, Morton had to resort to unconstitutional measures for supporting his government. By strenuous efforts, he forced the county officials to cough up $135,000 from their county coffers and from private sources, and he got $250,000 from a special fund held by the War Department didn't have to be dealt with by Congress. And he placed these funds in the hands of an extra-legal Bureau of Finance, which he created and thus carried Indiana through two years more of war. Thus, the conflict between parties in Indiana destroyed constitutional government for the last half of the Civil War and made Morton as much a dictator as Charles I. Um, he long edified union meetings with the tale of how his vigilance had saved a commonwealth that was on the brink of revolution. I don't think he did anything of the sort. He uh, simply let his passions carry him away. In Illinois, Governor Yates felt that he had to intervene with equal directness. 